and minimalists. <laughs> Ryan, this one is only for our true fans and our VIPs because screw everyone else. Yeah, just so you know, true fans, we love you the most. No, no, VIPs, we love you the most. Oh, I mean, VIPs, we love you the most. And we love the true fans the second yeah, most. Yeah, I put all the VIPs in my will. <laughs> I cut out my family and friends and just the VIPs are in my will you're gonna be left five black shirts to share amongst the hundred of you <laughs> no we're really grateful for everyone who listens to our podcast not yeah. just the folks who are supporting us but we are grateful that you decided to support us we wanted to do something a little bit different this month this is Ask the Minimalist uh, 31 so we've been doing this for 31 years Ryan <laughs> And uh, it's, it is crazy though, man. I mean, it is, I mean, one a month, that's almost three years. Like it's time flies, man. Yes, indeed. So we're doing something different. We just got back from Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, we were in Utah for a specific reason. We're finishing up the soundtrack to Less Is Now, mm-hmm. which is our second documentary. It's not really a documentary. It's a docu-special. It's mm. part documentary, part special. You'll see why when it comes out on Netflix later this year. But uh, we were there with V, uh, yeah, with We, rather. Uh, V-V-E is how they spell it. Yeah. They pronounce it We. It's a band they formed just for our first documentary. They're back, and it's uh, three and a half people who have come together to form a band. It's uh, our friends Nate and Drew who really formed the, the band for the first film. And we brought in Rob, uh, who did a lot of the, the instrumentation on there. And then um, Scott. Shepard yeah. uh, does a lot of the writing for the lyrics on on the album. The studio we went to was absolutely amazing. Unbelievable. Ju- June Audio. Yeah. The best music scene in the country, by the way, is in Provo, Utah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Well, I mean, I've been to a few studios in Los Angeles, and I haven't seen anything as awesome as what what was it, June Audio. Yeah, and it's like seven different studios there. Yeah. And uh, we were in a little production studio. Jordan, uh, Ear Jordan was with us. He was, uh, he was filming... Uh, 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 so the behind the scenes of the making of the soundtrack. Ultimately, I think there's 14 tracks, uh, 10 of which I believe will have vocals on them. Yeah, some of them will actually end up making the film, some won't, but they produce this beautiful, beautiful soundtrack, which will be available as well. Uh, we explicitly told them we don't want to own your music. We, you, Even though we, we paid for the soundtrack to be made and a very generous amount to, to make it because we really believe that it brings out the emotion in the film. We don't want to own someone else's art, so they, mm-hmm. they're going to release the soundtrack separately from the film. We brought Podcast Sean out there with us to capture the audio and, and also be our entertainment. And um, I just want to know why you keep dragging me to losing jazz games. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, there's a commonality. Every time I go to a jazz game, they win, except... Except for when I'm with you? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I'm like the unlucky pair of underwear. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good Twitter bio. <laughs> I'm like an un- unlucky pair of underwear. So oh, shoot. Uh, we, while we were out there, we actually... Jordan filmed all of this. I think we're going to put a, a video up on our YouTube channel. We, we do this thing... This vlog called a meaningful life and just document our entire journey out to salt lake in in the winter out to utah in the winter rather yeah and uh, while we were there we went to utah jazz game we we did the studio stuff and we explored salt lake city but also what you're about to find out is we did a unscripted meetup so we sent a text from our text group if you're not on our text group and you want to be it's 937-202-4654 you can just send us a text message we'll add you to our private text group and what we did is 24 hours in advance we said hey meet us at public coffee which is a coffee shop in 
Salt Lake City. Yep. And uh, about 85 of you or maybe close to 100 uh, people showed up at this event and we just had a conversation and we learned some things like we need to arrive even earlier because we got there an hour early and we didn't, weren't mic'd up or anything and mm. there, were, there was already a crowd of people who had accumulated. So we started recording this sort of in the middle of it and we started answering questions. We started um, having conversations with people and so you're going to get an edited version of that which we're sharing just for the folks who attended that, that unscripted meetup or for the folks who are true fans and VIPs on Patreon, that's the only way that you're going to have access to the audio and video for this. Is there any other preface or preamble we should give them, Ryan? I don't think so, man. I really enjoyed the event. It was uh, very no very nostalgic. It was reminiscent of what we used to do. And I can't. When's the last time we did a hug line? I mean, that was that, dude. That's my personal favorite part. Is like that that connection with each individual. Even though, like, the shop was closing. Sean was uh, hustling people out because we had to get out of there by the time they closed, but still just like having that, that, uh, that intimate interaction with each person, like that's by far, like that was the most meaningful for me. It was my favorite event we've had in years. Yeah. And uh, part of it is certainly the hug line, the, the intimacy of the, the small group, the sort of in the round, it's sort of us just holding court. It's not us just giving a talk on stage and having that, that barrier is sort of breaking down the barriers. And uh, yeah, you're right. A hug line becomes untenable if we're doing an event with 2000 people. Right. Mm -hmm. But w with a small event like this, it's like, of course that's, we, we enjoy doing that. And um, we always say the hugs are, are, are consensual. Um, they're also free and transferable. Mm -hmm. uh, some, some girl came up to me afterwards. She was like, um, uh, you're sure you want to hug? And I'm like, well, no, not if you. <laughs> it, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, it's like she, she, she was actually trying to be kind. She's like, I know you're an introvert. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, but it doesn't mean I'm socially incompetent either. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really enjoy these types of events. We're gonna do more of them. So if you join our text list, you can be a part of that as well. All right, y'all, enjoy this. Yeah. Utah meetup. Let's get to it. meetup. Here yeah. it is. All right. Wire. Does anyone, anyone know where we can get some drugs? <laughs> <laughs> so you guys want to talk about any crimes? <laughs> yeah. 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 So the reason I came here today. Tell me. What's your name? Chantel. Hey Chantel. I, I just want to say thank you to you guys. Oh. Thank you come so here, much. Give me a hug. Come here. Oh. I got you. I needed a hug. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You guys are amazing. Yeah, this is why we do it. I gotta like, show my kids too that I can do hard things. Oh, that's. Fun. You know what? It's yeah. That's that's awesome that you recognize your kids yeah. want to see that too. They want to see you do these hard things. Yeah. yeah. You guys was like. Oh. Well, congratulations on your journey, and I'm. I mean, if it was just you who got something out of it, we would still do this. I mean, it's... Uh, In fact, we were doing that for a very long time. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, well, it's, it's crazy, like, in, in, you know, in my old corporate years of, you know, yesteryear, like, getting a promotion, getting a raise, getting a new car, getting a house, all those things, it wanes. Like, it's, it's almost... It's almost like... What? It's almost like... I'll be you, down in a second. <laughs> It's almost like you just set the bar a little bit higher each time. 
And what, what you just did, like that feels the same every single time and it sticks. So thank you so much for expressing that. We really appreciate it. You know, it's, uh, oh, yes ma'am. What's your name? Ashley. Hey, Ashley. Two thousand ten is when we started doing the minimalist, but I, I think we both started simplifying around two thousand nine. Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I just did want to say I want you guys to know because of the decisions you made way back when you're impacting lives now that I had no idea any of this existed for literal children. I'm only twenty. Oh wow! That's incredible. Awesome. I'm really grateful. She, she, she's just 21, and I, I wish I would have thought about simplifying. When I was, the thing I was thinking about most when I was 21 is how can I complex my life? So the word complex comes from the Latin root complex, which means to bind two things together. You think of a rope, it's complected with a bunch of individual strands, right? And I was thinking, how can I get more strands onto this thing? How can I make my life more complex? And the shortcut to that is get as much debt as you possibly can. Mm. Um, at the sort of pinnacle of my career, I had about half a million dollars worth of debt. Um, and I felt trapped, but I also felt trapped because I was tethered to a lifestyle that was not bringing me contentment or joy or satisfaction. Uh, I didn't feel like I was thriving creatively. I didn't feel like, I mean, I weighed 80 pounds more than I weigh now. I, I saw my health was, was not great, but I also, my relationships were sort of relationships of convenience or proximity. And, and um, I got there sort of one new strand at a time. It's not, I didn't complex my life overnight. It didn't, didn't become complex, but by the time I was 30 and I was looking in the rear view, it was like, oh no. These compounding decisions, each one of them makes a difference, but then the opposite's also true. Like, as you make these good decisions when you're 21, you're gonna be set when you're 30, and when you're, how old are we? Thir I don't like to talk about it. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Ends up in a landfill. Yeah. Yeah. So, just for the people in the back, she's talking about how uh, in the media um, you will see commentary on how minimalists are wasteful because they throw away their stuff. So, if you got like a hoarder who gets rid of all their stuff, now you're just putting things into a landfill. And, you know, what are our thoughts on that? Um, you know, it, whether it's sitting in a hoarder's house, or whether it's sitting in a landfill, like it's still, you know, it's either polluting their lives or it's, if their house, you know, decomposed, like everything would still be sitting there in that spot. Um, and we, we do encourage people to recycle as much as possible. I mean, there are, you know, so many things you can recycle. You don't have to hey, throw away. Hey, where's Sean? You don't have to throw away Tell everything. him to go downstairs and get the drink. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize you got another drink. No, it's for Sean. Oh, that's hilarious. That's funny. <laughs> um, 
So, so yeah, I mean, we, we encourage to recycle, but what I'll say is when you, when you take on a life of intentionality, like you are by definition doing something for the environment because you're consuming less. And that is to me, like that's, that's saving the environment. That's not destroying the environment. I really look up to the zero waste people. Like, I think it's awesome. Um, I think that it's also so restrictive that it turns some people off. And so I don't advocate for a zero waste lifestyle. I, if you want to, great. I think it's awesome. In fact, I would prefer it if they were to put my cup in a, to, uh, in a, in a for here cup. But like, I don't freak out about it. It's not about consuming. Uh, it's not about producing no waste at all. It's about consuming way less. Like I consume 90% less than what I used to. And so I produce much, much, much less waste as a result. Um, Unfortunately, as Ryan said, you, if you already have a bunch of stuff, you do what you can to recycle it if you're getting rid of it or to upcycle it, to reuse it. There's some things that will end up in the landfill, but if you're intentional with getting rid of the things, it'll be far fewer things that end up there. Yeah. Um, but we, can, we can't hold on to everything because it's a piece of waste. Or I mean, think about that. We literally have trash cans in our house. I can't hold on to that. I want to, I want to get rid of that. Unfortunately, most of us also have trash in our attics and our basements and our garages and everywhere else. I used to have a two and a half car garage. I don't know what the hell a half car is, but um, I, there you go. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the real reason people have two and a half car garages is so they can fill it with stuff, right? It's 33% of Americans can't fit one car in their two-car garage. So th there, is, there is this dissonance there where we, we, we just have storage lockers in our own homes, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that from a place of judgment. I'm saying it from a place of identification because I had a lot of stuff. Now, you had a question a moment ago. I did. Yeah. About, uh, can, you, can you reiterate I'll, the question? I'll, I'll repeat it. So because I've seen how minimalist lifestyle philosophy can benefit those who have excess, mm -hmm. but then how can it benefit those who have less than the average person who may be struggling with basic necessities? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the question is, how can a person who is maybe living uh, on low income or below the poverty line, uh, or just a person with less, how can they benefit the same way that someone who has excess stuff can benefit from minimalism? And so. Uh, a few things that, that I'd like to point out here is you asked that question very nicely. Uh, the question often manifests in, in a way like, like this. People will sometimes say, um, look, minimalism only solves first world problems. And let's say, let's tackle that, that problem. I'm going to tackle it head on, and then I'll get to your actual question, because I, I really appreciate, what, appreciate the way you asked the question. Does minimalism only solve first world problems? Well, I'll set aside for a moment. I'll pretend that we don't get emails from people in India and Afghanistan and Kenya and places like that who say, hey, I own next to nothing, but thank you for helping me out with the, the desire to accumulate like the West. Let's pretend that doesn't exist. Let's pretend Ryan and I didn't grow up poor. And, and, wouldn't, and let's pretend we wouldn't have benefited from minimalism growing up. And let's say for a second, let's just pretend that minimalism solves only first world problems. So what? Is that saying that first world problems don't deserve to be solved at all? Or, or that we shouldn't solve any problem, right? Well, of course not. I mean, I want to help people solve problems in general. However, if we talk about minimalism, what are we really talking about? If we're talking about like 
really expensive luxury minimalist aesthetic? No, it's probably not going to benefit most of us, let's be honest about it. Uh, but if we're talking about the intentional use of the resources that we have, Ryan and I both grew up really poor. Uh, Dayton, Ohio, food stamps, government assistance, uh, drug and alcohol abuse in the household, physical abuse in the household, a lot of uh, dysfunction. We were in dysfunctional families before it was cool to be in dysfunctional families. <laughs> and, and through that whole process, I thought, man, the reason we're so unhappy is we don't have any money. And so when I turned 18, I went out and I got an entry-level corporate job. And I spent the next decade just climbing the corporate ladder because, of course, money was going to be happiness, right? And by the time I was 19, I was making $50,000 a year, which is more than my mom had ever made. And I was spending $65,000 a year. And I couldn't figure out why I was even more discontented as a result. And as I continued to make more money, I continued to spend more money in the pursuit of happiness. And by my late 20s, I started to realize, like, well, wait a minute. Maybe we weren't discontented when we were poor just because of a lack of resources. Maybe we were also discontented in our household specifically because of some repeated bad decisions with the few resources we did have. And I look back once I discovered minimalism and I realized that, yeah, it helped me when I was supposedly rich. I wasn't rich, I was broke. I, I, I made good money, but I didn't have any money. I had debt. But I was able to start using the resources that I had more intentionally. But you know who would have benefited even more was my childhood self. We had fewer resources. And so using those resources more intentionally, if that's ultimately what we're talking about when we're talking about minimalism, if we're talking about using our resources more intentionally, I don't know who wouldn't benefit from that. That's my short answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because people will often posit that, the other way that question manifests is, uh, you know, what do you say about poor people who are minimalists not by choice? And I, I don't think... I don't think uh, you can't be a minimalist without choosing to without choosing to, to be a minimalist because the idea is to live deliberately. It's about like Josh was saying to use the resources that you do have available very deliberately. Like my mother, she is still very poor. Um, I go to her house and she can absolutely benefit from minimalism, not just with the stuff that's in her home, but the way that she spends her time, the way that she uh, spends her attention. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that's my long way of saying, like, I don't think poverty equals minimalism. I don't, I don't think monks equal minimalism. Actually, that might be the ultimate minimalist. I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up a really great point, though, with uh, not the monk thing, but with your mom thing. You also can't, like, because another question that comes up that's sort of a, uh, an offshoot of this is, like, I'll ask it in the mean way, how, so what people really mean. How do I force my wife or how do I force my husband to become a minimalist? And it's like the same thing. How do you force your mom to become a minimalist? How do I drag my significant other kicking and screaming to minimalism? And that, that's the opposite, right? It's like, how do I force someone to be intentional? Right. Um, you really can't, but you can demonstrate a lifestyle. And if they see the benefits in their own life, then they can start to make some changes and sort of adjust accordingly. Yeah. Yes, sir. What's your name, brother? I'm Colin. Hey, Colin. Hey, um, Chris, Pete, everybody here. Thank you. Cool. Um, so I was looking at your values worksheet, and I want to know how can we more honestly fill out that values worksheet 
uh, to cover what we think are our foundational structural and surface values. Yeah. Uh, and then also find a way to get feedback on them from maybe someone who's close to you knows you well. Yeah. And also how can we take those then and, and incorporate it into our life to create meaningful change in our decisions. Mm. Phenomenal question. So what he's talking about is something we have on our website called a values worksheet. Uh, it's on the resources page over our website. It's free download. Um, and there's an essay there as well called How to Understand Your Values. And Ryan and I, um, we had identified four different types of values in our life. And you mentioned three of them. I'm, there's one that is actually the least important, which makes it the most important that you didn't mention. But we'll talk about those real quick. So the types of values are your your foundational value. So if you're building a house, you need a foundation. Foundation, right? And, and that's, I think it's pretty similar for most of us. It's health, relationships, creativity, some sort of growth and some sort of contribution or giving to others. I think it's pretty much the same. You might have one or two others, but the, everyone has a similar foundation, just like every house pretty much has a similar foundation. From there, things start to get different. Structural values are what holds the house up and it's sort of a just for taste. Like we all, we all tend to have different structural values. And then we have surface values that are usually wildly different. Uh, and those things are just, they add a little bit of value to your life, but they're not the main focus of your life. And then the last layer is sort of like the fence you accidentally put around your house, now you can't get into it. They're the imaginary values. And why those are so important is because most of our imaginary values are the things that we spend most of our time on, the things that we think are so important in the moment that they actually get in the way of what is truly important. They get in the way of our relationships, so we forsake the people closest to us. They get in the way of our creativity, so we, we don't write that book we wanted to write. We don't start the podcast we wanted to do. We don't do the woodworking we said we were going to do, the making the clay pots, or whatever it is that, that you want to create in the world. Well, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do it someday. But of course, someday never comes along and we keep putting it off. And so our imaginary values are the fence that sort of get in the way, right? And, uh, and, and what I've found is that the way I'm able to address those imaginary values is with a question. And, and that is, is what I'm doing today going to be important a year from now? And sometimes, most of the time, the answer is no. And, and sometimes that can be okay. Um, we all do things that are sort of ephemeral, we have escapes, um, you know, I might go to the movies or, or, or whatever, but if I'm forsaking the things that are most important to me enough, if, if, you're, if you're careless with something for long enough, it breaks. And by the time I turned 30, my life was sort of broken. I had a really beautiful fence around it though, the house, and, and you couldn't tell, like, everything was sort of rotting on, on the inside. And so I think asking that question helps us start to, start to sort of prioritize those, those values and, and, and putting the most important values first and then sort of building on top of that for your own preferences. Yeah. So your question was like, how do you narrow those down? And I think that question that Josh said, like, is it going to be important a year from now? That will help you uncover those, those true values that you want to put in those different areas. But one thing is you've got to be open to those values changing. I mean, your values are going to be different five years from now. They're going to be different ten years from now. It's funny, I... Uh, Especially those, those uh, um, surface values. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've been... Uh, there's like this uh, uh, like men's group that I go to in Los Angeles. And uh, the last meeting I just went to on Tuesday, we were sitting around and one of this dude led us through this exercise of writing down all of our values. And I was like, 
this is what I do. Like, I, I, I've, I do this. Like, this is what I do. So I, I kind of was just going through the exercise just to do it. But as I was going through it, I realized that I actually hadn't gone through those, those values in probably two years. And just in two years, I'm like, holy crap. Like, I'm glad I'm actually going. Th- I need to go through this more often than once every two years because it was so different just from two years ago. So, yeah, don't get too married to them. Like, don't feel like you got to have this perfect list. That, that worksheet really, that's your compass. And that's, that's what you want to use it for. Um, don't use it as, like, your, the, the, the life Bible for the rest of your life. Just use it as a way to kind of guide you and, and constantly revisit that. I find that mine often shift categories, too. Like, the yeah. thing that was wildly important to me three years ago is, like, yeah, that's a surface value now. Like, I still get some value from that thing. I also have to be honest with myself because I can justify anything. I can say YouTube is like a, is a, a minor value, a surface value of mine. But really, if I'm wasting an hour a day just drooling on myself watching still YouTube videos, if it's getting in the way of the other stuff, maybe it's actually not a value at all. And so we have to be really careful that, and, and realize that it does shift over time. That you, It doesn't mean it's no longer your value. It's just no longer the same level of priority, which the word priority is a really strange word, right? It's, it wasn't until the 20th century that we had a plural for the word priority. Priority literally means the first thing. A few years ago, the United Nations released their list of 163 priorities. If you have 163 the first things, you don't have any first thing. You have no priority at all. And so I think that's what ultimately we're talking about these values. In many ways, they are a prioritization set for our life. And like something like this, like this, I'll remember this for the rest of my life. This event, this is important. I know this will matter for me a year from now or two years from now. I remember the first Salt Lake event we did with two people showed up in 20, December 2011. That mattered to me then. And, and so I... I constantly want to do things that will matter to me then because they, they also matter in the moment, right? But often the things that matter in the moment, they might not matter at all tomorrow. Yes, ma'am. So, um, I don't know how to phrase this question. I'm just trying to hear what I'm asking. What's your name? Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Oh. Thanks for being here. <laughs> so happy when I Thanks for coming out. Hey, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So Jamie has four kids and um how do we parent our kids in, in, in a time like this uh, where everyone is vying for our attention is ultimately what you're struggling with. And so you're afraid of missing out. And, and of course, you are missing out. You're missing out on functionally 100% of everything that's going on outside these four walls right now. And that's okay. In fact, we have to miss out on those things. The problem is when we stop missing out, when we, when we start to divide our attention. We have some pretty precious resources in our life. Money is an important resource. 
It's not the most important resource, but it is important. I don't, I don't stand up here and act like, oh, money doesn't matter. No, it, it does matter. It pays our bills. Um, time is a very important resource. Our energy is an important resource. Our skills are an important resource. But our most precious resource is our attention. And it's actually the thing that everyone's vying for. All these companies, in fact, if they're not charging you money, you know, Google or whoever, they're charging you your attention. And, and isn't it strange that we like, if I lost a $10 bill, I'm gonna get mad at myself, right? If I lose 10 minutes, I don't think anything of it. If I don't pay attention to uh, my daughter or to my wife, 10 minutes, it's like, ah, just 10 minutes, but like, well, wait a minute. 10 minutes become 10 hours, and then all of a sudden, it's a spiral. So the question isn't, how do I not miss out? The question is, what are the most important things for me to pay attention to? And that actually goes back to the values question that Colin asked. It, it, how, how do I prioritize these people in my life? And then how do I discover there's a term joy of missing out as opposed to FOMO, the fear of missing out? And it, it takes quite the mindset, mindset shift, but being grateful for missing out, proudly excluding virtually, you know, probably excluding 99% of the other opportunities that you have, so you can focus on this one thing, there's a certain kind of gratitude practice in that that I find to be really important. Yeah. I think the, and you probably do a good job of this, I'm assuming, but I think what, when I see kids really getting overwhelmed, it's, they're getting, they're getting screens at a very early age, and they're spending so much time on them, and that Again, I was just we were speaking earlier about my attention span. I, I didn't grow up with this stuff. My attention span has changed since social media and the cell phone and the, all the breaking news. So, uh, I mean, that's one thing for sure that you can kind of help, that will help children, I think, not be so anxious. I think that depression that you're speaking to, I think a lot of it comes from the, it's just the way that, 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 that those glowing screens are changing us. Not to mention... Um, I mean, social media is... Uh, I'm so glad we didn't have Facebook in high school, man. Like, I, I, I mean, it was... I'm so glad we didn't have camera phones in high school. Right, right, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, it's just... It's a, it's a whole new layer that we've just had to really start working with, but you're seeing the effects of it in, in different ways. Yeah, yeah. you, you know, the, it's, it's funny you mentioned the, the, the technology leading to sort of depression, right? Um, when we talk about depression, we have to also talk about what we're really talking about. Sometimes we're just talking about sadness, right? Which can be a type of depression, but then there's also like clinical depression. There, there's uh, either, either type though is like extreme despair. Despair says something about the future and so does hope, right? And so, so the antidote to depression in many instances is hope. So how can I inject hope into the kid's life as opposed to um, pacifying them with more glowing screens. Which is hard, I know. I can, it's hard for me to unglue Ella from her tablet. I can only imagine if I had four kids. <laughs> no, she's pretty good with that, man. Yes, ma'am. You guys do a good job. What's your name? Uh, okay. Nice. Shavum? Shavum. Nice to meet Shavum. you. It's good to meet you. Thanks for coming out.
Yeah. 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 I like that. No, it's great. It's like our listeners get some comments. Yeah. So for those of you who didn't hear a tip to adding to the values thing, it's ask yourself what's important about life and, and, and making a list. I think that's a great question to even put on the values worksheet. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you, Shatham rhymes with fathom. <laughs> Me too. Especially yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Okay. It's funny, I mean, Josh, Josh said, like, we still struggle with that. I wish I could say, hey, guys, buy our books and listen to our podcast, and you'll never want to buy anything again. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Like, I st- especially being in L.A., like, I feel like the last 10 years, I have been preparing myself to live in Los Angeles because I, I still have that 2004 Toyota Corolla. Uh, it still leaks when it rains. Um, uh, the last apartment building Mariah and I lived in, there was literally... Uh, just within like the one parking row, there's like a half a million dollars worth of cars sitting there. And it doesn't even phase me because I have been, I, like I said, I think I've, I feel like I've been preparing to like live in Los Angeles. But I still do twinge like when I look at a Tesla and I'm like, oh man, it's good for the environment. Like we find different ways to like talk ourselves into buying purchases. But ultimately, like when it comes to something like, because now you can get a Tesla used. It's not a million dollars. Uh, you can get one that's five years old, and you, you know it's a decent price on a car. Um, and maybe I could go out and afford that. But you know, I really ask myself, like, what am I going to get out of that? Like, I don't drive, but maybe twice a week, um, I walk to the, I walk to our studio. So I don't, I don't have a commute to work. Um, I, I really try to uncover what it is I'm going to get out of that purchase. And if I'm honest with myself you know, just sticking with the Tesla example, like I know my life isn't going to be that much better with it. In fact, I've even had dreams where I bought one and I'm like driving it in LA and it's doing like the self-driving thing. And I'm like, Oh, this is cool. But like, there is no sense of satisfaction in that, in those dreams. It is like this, almost like I let myself down because I, I didn't pay attention to what was truly important. But when it comes to art though, I mean, this is like a really interesting topic because artists they look at everything and they, they feel like they can create out of anything. So these hold on to a lot of things. I, I think like with that specifically, it, you've got to learn how to set boundaries up for yourself. So it's okay to, if you're going through this major transition and you're finding new hobbies that you like, you're finding, uh, or maybe you move to a new place and you got to get a couch or whatever it is, um, that's okay. Uh, just try to set some boundaries up. I mean, Josh talked about the rule book. Um, uh, tell them about the 30, the 30, 30 rule. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, when it comes to buying new things, one of the, the rules that I found helped me a lot, we call it the wait, wait for it rule, right? And, and it's also known as the 30-30 rule. And because now it's so easy that we've removed all 
the friction from the buying process, I can get on Amazon right now in my pocket, and like I can buy you know a, a barbecue grill, a dining room set, a mattress, and a kitten. Um, <laughs> all right there on my phone. And so uh, the rule that I came up with is like, if something costs $30, I wait at least 30 hours to buy it. So basically, it's, it's like wait a day to make that decision. And I find that over 90% of the time, that impulse goes away. I, I stop thinking about it. If I, you know, if I still feel it after 30 hours, then, I'll, then I'll, I'll consider buying it still. If it's more than 100 bucks, I try to wait 30 days. Uh, a little bit harder to, to, to uh, adhere to that one. But one other thing, you, you mentioned the word excitement. And I think excitement's really dangerous. I'm not against excitement. I want to be excited, right? But I think when excitement becomes the, the compass by which we, we point ourselves in a direction, we start, we become the pinball in a, in a, in a, uh, a pinball machine, right? And we're just bouncing from one exciting idea to another, to another, to another. Well, as soon as something stops being exciting, we move on to the next thing. But anything that's actually worth doing where there's real payoff requires a certain amount of drudgery. And, and, and so I find that almost all the payoff is where that, uh, what Seth Godin calls the dip. You have to be willing to, to drudge through the drudgery and, and uh, find the payoff on the other side. And so when I get excited about something, it's almost a, 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 cue, a cue to pause and say, all right, why is this exciting to me? And is this actually worth pursuing? Because we confuse excitement with passion. But I think excitement is actually the enemy of passion. And real passion comes from being willing to drudge through the drudgery. Yes, yes ma'am. Yeah, Marie Kondo. Yeah. I think a, I totally agree with that. With, with looking at something. The question Ryan and I ask is, and I think it's a little bit more comprehensive than that, and I really like what Marie Kondo has done. She's helped a lot of people organize their lives, uh, and I think she's a kindred spirit. There's a translation issue, though. So the word joy is different in Japanese than it is in English. And so when we say joy, we actually conflate it with a bunch of different terms, right? We often think of pleasure as the same thing as joy. Um, pleasure is... Uh, eating a piece of chocolate cake can bring me pleasure, right? But that doesn't... If I constantly eat chocolate cake, I'm eating a bunch of calories. I'm not getting any nutrition. The same is true if I'm constantly doing something that's pleasing myself. I'm just doing the things that are exciting. It's exciting to eat a, a piece of chocolate cake, but it's not necessarily meaningful, right? Because there's no real nutrition in it, right? It's okay every once in a while. You have a piece of chocolate cake, it's not going to kill you. If it becomes the primary uh, staple of your diet, you're going to get sick quickly. Most of us are walking around pretty sick emotionally, spiritually, mentally as a result of trying to constantly please ourselves. And now we have all that pleasure. Uh, refresh my screen and I'm on Instagram right now and, 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 and I get that dopamine hit. So I get the momentary pleasure, but it's gone just like that too. And so I think there are gradations of well-being. And we're writing about this in a new book actually. It's called Love People Use Things. 
Uh, it'll be out next year. And, and in, in that book, what I try to do, or we try to do, is differentiate between pleasure, which is on the low, nothing wrong with pleasure, I'm not against it, but it's on the low end of the well-being spectrum. And then there are continuum. And then there's happiness. Happiness is a sort of a, a greater level of well-being. But happiness is also an empty pursuit. If we're just chasing happiness, we're never going to be fulfilled because happiness doesn't make room for any other emotion. So as soon as you feel sad or, or guilty or, or any other sort of negative emotion, if you want to lament something, happiness doesn't make room for that. And then you have other uh, levels of, of well-being. You have contentment, um, which, as, as use the cake analogy, you have contentment, you, you have pleasure as a piece of cake. Happiness is like a, a well-balanced meal, a healthy meal. You eat that once, great, you're happy in the moment, it tastes good, it's good for you, but then it goes away, right? If your next meal is cake again, you're right off the happiness wagon. The next is, is contentment, and that is like long-term well-being. And, and, and so, the, and I think the, the, the most, um, and so that would be like a balanced diet long-term, right? And then I think joy is sort of the, the highest level of well-being. Uh, and, and when I think of joy, it does a few things. One is it can only be experienced with other people. And so it'd be sharing that well-balanced meal with other people, right? Sharing your life with others. It's hard to experience joy on a de deserted island by yourself, right? Uh, but you can experience levels of contentment. You could experience happiness and pleasure on, on an island. But without other people, it's hard to experience joy. And, and also joy makes room for all the other emotions. If you experience joy, there is room for sadness. There, there is room for um, well, the whole spectrum of emotion, really. And, and, and so a life filled with joy is, is different from I'm going to hold on to this thing only if it sparks joy. I don't think things can spark joy in that way. But again, there's a translation error here. It's not Marie Kondo's fault. Um, what Ryan and I say is, does this thing serve a purpose, meaning does it have a function, or does it bring me joy, meaning can I share it with others? When you're talking about joy and sadness, it sounds like you were describing the movie Inside Out for a second. And, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Was out here in the salt flats. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Did you see Dave Chappelle redo that recently? Anybody? No. Okay. But you were talking about how we're going through this big, huge life change, having to figure out what you really quote unquote need. Yeah. Yeah, so, so when I was reading that passage um, out there in the Salt Flats, right down the street from here, um, I, I, um, I was, that passage was occurring, I was older than this at the time, I was 29 when, when I started questioning those things, so 
uh, it'll go by in a blink of an eye. Before you know it, you're going to be 29. Um, and it's okay. But like, you're actually asking the right question, and it's constantly about questioning. Our, our, our questions are what make our values much stronger because it, it's like with any, any sort of set of beliefs. You know, the values are sort of the destination. A belief is how you get to that destination. But if you're, ask, if you're questioning those beliefs and you're questioning those values, you, they're either going to change for you, which they likely will at 21, which is great, but then they'll start to solidify. And, and as, they, as they sort of crystallize, you question it more. It'll either make it more crystallized or you'll realize like, oh no, I don't actually value that. And so the thing I can, I'm going to encourage you to do, and I can't give you specific questions because they are highly individual, is continue to question over and over. And that's what I was trying to do out there. I was reading that passage in the Salt Flats, and I was like, um, does, this espresso, does this espresso maker define me as a man, right? And like, what I was trying to identify is like, all these things I brought into my life, they became part of my identity. In fact, the first line of that book is, our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. And quite often we try to like, we have all this stuff on the surface. If I wear this suit, or if I wear the trendy piece of clothing, or if I, if I have the nice car, you know, I, had, I had two Lexuses at one point. Um, right, and, yeah. uh, and, um, but I didn't even know why, because you know what? I never asked myself why. It was like, well, the first one made me happy. Happiness, right? We get back to the happiness thing. It made me happy when I bought it. Be discontented when the first of 63 car payments showed up and I was discontented every month thereafter from that one decision I made because I didn't question will this add value to my life when I say will it add value will it serve a purpose will it bring me joy and if not I don't bring it in and if something stops adding value to my life I continue to question it and I let it go didn't see any hands over here yes sir What's your name, brother? Uh, ben. Hey, Ben. So, if you could, would you change the name? Because I feel like other people that do similar, like Greg McEwen, when he talks about essentials, I feel like most people understand what he is talking about. Okay. But I feel like when people talk about minimalism, they immediately think, we were talking about before, like, oh, this is monks, so and this is extremist. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, so before we, this, this thing started, what I was talking about, I don't know if you were here for that, but um, I think minimalism is both the most perfect name and the least perfect name for this whole thing, right? I don't care what ism you use. You can call it uh, essentialism, uh, intentionalism, living within your means-ism. <laughs> to me, it, it's, it's, about, it's about being intentional with the few resources that we have, right? Or if we have a lot of resources, that's great too, because it allows us to contribute to others. And, and so I like the name because it jars people. It got a lot of people to watch our documentary, right? Uh, literally over 10 million people watching that documentary and, um, and so I think it's intriguing but I also hope that when we talk about it we add the nuance to it you can realize like oh this isn't this isn't radical this isn't extreme unless I want it to be if you want it to be extreme great uh, some people do and I'm, I'm all for that on an individual level but Ryan and I also aren't proselytizing like I don't want to convert any of you to minimalism tonight um, yeah, I, I don't think there's a way to do that even, right? I there's, I don't think it's possible. there's no tithing. Um, uh, you could become a Patreon supporter, but that's about it. Um, but no, I, I really hope that that word gets enough people, it piques their interest, 
this sort of opens the door to allow us to add the nuance that is important to, to explain the, the concept. I really like Greg McEwen. I like essentialism a lot. I kind of think of that as, as minimalism for business in many ways. I mean, obviously it goes beyond business, but there's that more of a, of a, of a business focus with a lot of the stuff that he does. Yes, sir. So my name's Stratton. Hello. Nice to meet you, Stratton. You look familiar, man. Have we met? You look familiar, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have. Okay. Yes. Right. Right. So the, the the Latin root of the word passion means to suffer. And, and, and so when we think of some passion, we do think of excitement, right? It's like, oh, I'm passionate about this thing. And then, oh, there's another shiny thing. I'm passionate about that. No, you're not. Because you have to be willing to suffer for that thing. And, and you know, me getting up at 3.30 in the morning every morning to write a book for the last two years is like, okay, but I'm willing to suffer for this thing because uh, it's something I'm truly passionate about, right? Yeah, I love that. And then the second thing is a question. So... Yeah. Because I yeah. feel like one of the, the hard ones for me is there's so much I want to do, and there's a lot of things, I guess, that are important. Uh -huh. But then bringing that into like a day, like scheduling it, like planning, uh -huh. uh, I kind of find I, I err sometimes on being like too rigid and having like too many things. Yeah. And then other times not having anything at all. So just uh -huh. thoughts. Your wife's smiling. What's your wife's name? <laughs> Lots of conversations about it. What's your wife's name? Hey, Aaron. Um, so does he fill his calendar like with a lot of stuff, a lot of commitments, overcommit, or what? When we first got together, it was like the half hour. Like, yeah. Oh, wow. Not, Now, Aaron, the, the strat he struggles with saying no to stuff, right? I, I definitely say yeah. <laughs> okay. It's more saying no to like not even to like other people so much. Okay. But more, like, to all the Opportunities. I want to do. Yeah. Opportunities, yeah. 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 Right, but the, the problem is if uh, and all of these things seem precious in the moment, right? But if everything's precious, nothing's precious, and and, and so. Um, I'll just give you a few quick tips that I do for scheduling my days. I don't schedule anything before 2 p.m. That's a luxury for me now because it took, it took me almost 40 years to be able to say that. Um, but I, I say no to virtually everything before 2 p.m. Do I make occasional exceptions? Yes, but they need to be real exceptions. Uh, or emergencies, obviously, right? Emergencies trump everything. Uh, but of course, most emergencies aren't. Um, everything does seem like an emergency from time to time. So. I actually was very similar to you. I would schedule things down to the 15 or 30 minute mark, especially in the corporate world. It was, Brian, remember we had meeting Mondays? Yeah. So every Monday, we had, <laughs> we had 10 meetings in a nine hour span. And so it was like, and literally one of them was a pre-meeting meeting, meeting um, so planning the next meeting. Um, and uh, it almost seemed like some sort of parody. I, and I realized, oh, I'm living in a parody. 
uh, th this is going to turn into a meme if I don't do something about it. Uh, but uh, what I realized was like the reason that I that I did that is I was saying yes to everything. But when I started saying yes to everything, I was saying no to the things that were most important to me. So it gets back to the priority conversation, but it's not, I'm no longer saying no to all that stuff. I'm saying yes to something first, and that means I can't do the other things, just by default, right? And so when I get up early and write in the morning, like, I do that because A, I'm a morning person, B, my family is still asleep, so like, I have the time to myself, the rest of the world, I'm not getting pinged by emails and all this other stuff. But when I do that, like, I'm carving out this time for, for me to do the, the, the most important thing, the priority, right? And, and so it's not that we can't have a bunch of priorities, but at one, one moment we can have only one priority, right? Like, this is my priority right now. You guys would be pretty pissed if I'm like, well, hold on guys, let me check my email real quick. Uh, but that's kind of what we're doing in our everyday life, right? I mean, that's a, a sort of exaggerated version of it. But, but um, and so I, I tend to... I tend to avoid having anything on my calendar unless it absolutely needs to be there. This is on my calendar right now. Uh, but most of the time, my calendar is freed up and it is like, it's a, it almost feels like I'm a visual, a visual breath of fresh air. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how I struggle with keeping, not as much as I used to, but keeping a schedule in general. And scheduling things out, I was very unorganized that way. So, I mean, I have my calendar that I use to schedule out important things. Or sometimes, you know, it's just like, uh, oh, we want to go hiking on Saturday. So, like, I'm going to block off four hours to do that. And just so I can remind myself, like, oh, yeah, this is what I had planned today. Um, and you have the exact opposite problem. <laughs> that is crazy. Like, so... Like, you, yeah, like where you you are scheduling every you know as much as you can. That is, I I think you might be the first person I have met who have who has that problem. <laughs> I'm a little envious. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, I, I guess the only thing, if I had to add anything, I would just say give yourself permission to to not have it figured out 100 percent of the time. That is. So I was raised very religious, and I was having this conversation yesterday with Rob and uh, with Nate, and I was saying how when. When I felt like I had the, the secret answer that no one else had, like it felt, it, there was this comfort in like knowing exactly what the world was about, where the world's going, and how everything works, and I got it figured out. Um, as I get older, I'm finding out there's more joy in accepting that I don't have it figured out. And accepting that sometimes things are just because they are the way they are, it, it gives me permission to, to not always have an answer. So I guess, you know, I would just encourage you to kind of have that mentality when it, when it comes to your schedule. Like, you don't always have to have an answer. You don't always have to have it figured out. And sometimes, like, that's the beauty of life is is being able to, to do things a little spontaneously. I think it's great, like, since you guys have gotten married, that, and that just shows how a good relationship you guys have. You're able to kind of back off a little bit. It sounded like Aaron was not very pleased with having every half hour scheduled. And the, the fact that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not in the schedule today. Oh, uh, next Wednesday at seven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things. So every every morning, I I I write, I read, and I exercise. It's never on my calendar. It's because it's not part of a routine. It's a habit. And, I, and so maybe differentiate between habits and routines. Uh, a routine is something you have to do because it's on your calendar, right? A habit is something you get to do because you're compelled to do it. 
Way in the back, sir, the tallest man. A bunch of times, yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, a few things. One is I, I've seen someone watching our movie on a plane. Um, early on, I saw someone watch, uh, reading a copy of Essential, yeah. and uh, uh, it was sitting. She she was sitting on, in a, a seat in front of me, and I, and I'm like, hey, how's that book? She's like, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> can't please everyone. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had someone come up to me. They had a copy of, they're like, this is you, isn't it? <laughs> I was like, that is me. Yeah. My favorite story, though, is uh, a couple I met in Missoula, Montana. Shout out to Missoula. Um, it was at uh, my daughter's birthday party. We were at, this is a very Missoula thing. We were at a brew pub for my daughter's four-year-old birthday party. Um, <laughs> I don't drink, but she does. Uh, no, um, we were there, and this couple came up to me, and they were both on a business trip in St. Louis, and they were both reading Everything That Remains in a coffee shop together. And, like, a year later, they were married. And so that, that, that they met because, you know, they were both had the same book. Yeah, they were reading the same book. That is, that is such a cool story. So, yeah, we've... Uh, we create relationships for people with our books. <laughs> yeah, ma we're matchmakers. Anyone single here tonight? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so currently I'm trying to kind of change my circles around me. Yeah. Because I'm, I've realized more recently that I'm more of an introvert and I prefer to be alone. But yeah. And there's those certain people that kind of keep creeping in and I see them daily and I don't want to spend time with them. Yeah. But they keep like hounding me and bugging so how can I politely say yeah. like I have no use for you please go away <laughs> well I mean that's happened to me but I just started a website with him yeah uh, <laughs> no don't phrase it that way but you do want to set boundaries with your friends I mean I remember uh, when when Josh's uh, mom passed away he sent me a text and he's like hey man um, I'm not going to be available for a week like please don't try and call me and because we're friends and I love him and I want to support him, and I want him to be happy. Like, I knew that he needed the space. So I, my feelings weren't hurt. I was like, okay, yeah, that's, Josh is an introvert. He needs alone time, and he needs a lot of alone time right now. So I'm going to totally give him the space he needs. So I think, you know, uh, you're probably scared that your friends are going to get mad at you, but if they're true friends, like, as long as you don't phrase it the way you just said it, right. yeah, <laughs> like, they're going to support you. I mean, they're, you can just very politely say, like, hey, I really love hanging out with you, but I am realizing how much of an introvert I am, and I need a lot of alone time. So, uh, you know, I, I do want to see you, but today's not a good day. You know, let's catch up tomorrow or something. I mean, there's a way that you can phrase it that they're, they're not going to get their feelings hurt. And if they, if they do get their feelings hurt and they get mad at you, like, hey, that's a projection from them. That is not your fault that they get upset. And B, like, maybe you want to question if you want to hang out with that person anyway, if they're going to not support you. Exactly. And everything she ever says is so negative. And it's like, oh. and it's like I can't deal Oh. I'm kind of like you can say that. Too, so it's like I, I suck it in and it's like then I know yeah. the rest of the day I'm that negative person. Oh, well, it's contagious. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, negativity is definitely contagious. So, uh, is this someone you work with? No. Is this someone you're forced to be around though? Like, no, it's, it's one of my kids' friends. So okay. I see her every day at drop off for school. Mm. She, she looks for me every chance she gets. She's like, 
can just sit in my car and next day I know it's like, oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, there are two things. I'll be quick. Uh, one is uh, Dr. Henry Cloud has a great book called Boundaries. Definitely encourage you to, to, to read that. It, it's a, it talks about setting up healthy boundaries. Number two, there are three types of relationships in our lives. There are our sort of primary relationships. That's like the, you can usually count those uh, on one hand. Two hands if you're one. <laughs> um, it's a procreation joke there. Yeah. Uh, uh, in Boston, I, I say Catholic on that one, so it, it works out every time. Um, but uh, uh, primary relationships, like your closest friends, like Brian, or your family, your immediate family, the, the, the people absolutely closest to you. Uh, the secondary relationships are often like yeah, good friends, extended family, etc. And then the, the tertiary relationships are the peripheral relationships, the third kind. And those are the people who you might, they might be coworkers, or they might be friends of your kids, or... or or, uh, you know, they're just people you see occasionally, right? Acquaintances sort of thing. Uh, the problem in our life is we often spend 90% of our time with the people on the periphery, and that doesn't make the space necessary to spend with the time who are, uh, the people who are most, uh, most important to us, right? And so reprioritizing our relationships, spending the most time with the most important people, and then spending less time, and sometimes they have to, some people, if they're toxic, Letting go of toxic relationships, it's, no, it's an okay thing. You know, one of the most popular things that we talk about is you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with a family member who, the same exact thing, we talk on the phone and it was always a lot of negativity. And I got to the same point where you're at, where I was like, oh my goodness, like we can't talk about anything positive. Like it always has to be something negative. And I did tell that family member, I'm like, look, I love you and I want to support you as much as I can. But every time we talk, it, it, it always goes down this road of anger and, and, and negativity. And I don't, have, I don't have the room to go there every single time we talk. So, you know, this isn't a judgment against, this is what I'm telling them. I'm like, this isn't a judgment against you. This is, a, this is me. This is a me problem. I can't handle all the negativity. If all we're going to do is talk about negative things, like I'm going to have to like not be on the phone with you. And, uh, I mean, it was, there's a little pushback. Like, I'm not saying that's the easiest conversation to have, but it's just one, another way that you can help set that boundary up. Yes, sir. Oh. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You're next. You're next. Sorry. My name's Josh. Hey, Josh. Great name. Um, and so, great beard. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, without getting, like, super vulnerable and personal, just recently me and my wife went through a Never guess. I just want to thank you Your podcast on relationships is very helpful. Thank thanks, you, Josh. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate that. That is... I mean, that is like... Again, like every time I hear something like that, like that is... 
it just warms my heart so much, man, because like that's what that's why Josh and I do this, man, is because we know that there are people in your situation, people who were in our situation, they need a little help or a little different perspective. And um, I'm so happy we could do that for you, Josh. Yeah. I thought we were doing it for all the money. <laughs> you get paid? <laughs> yeah, it's all it's always a funny thing like with, with people who are like um, did you guys just do this to, um, to as like a money grab? I'm like starting a blog and a podcast with no ads is a really bad way uh, to try to uh, to I don't know, sell out for the man. Yeah. <laughs> nice. What's your name, brother? Chase. Chase. Good to meet you, man. Why? No, no, it's a, it's a, uh, I don't mean to be the one asking the questions, but it's an important question to ask. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So a few things. One is um, there are personal beliefs and then there are something called mimetic beliefs. The, the French philosopher uh, René Girard coined this term that basically means the society around me is imposing all of their beliefs onto me, right? And sometimes that's really beneficial because collectively we have some beliefs that are really helpful in our lives. Sometimes, though, we go a bit astray. I have to be productive. What's up, Jordan? Right. Um, so sometimes we have, to be, we have to be productive, right? Because the person next to me is productive and she's productive and he's productive. He and she and he don't know why they're being productive. They're being productive because you're being productive. They saw you being productive. They have to be as productive as you. Back in the corporate world, I used to be the first guy to get into the office and the last one to leave. Why? Because I saw someone else who was the first guy to get into the office and the last one to leave. And I thought I had to be the most productive. I think what Ryan and I do now is actually far less productive if you like put it on like a, a pie chart or something. But it's far more meaningful. Although it actually looks a lot more productive because we do some meaningful things that when you add it all up and you sort of look in the rear view, it's not all of the, we're not managing tasks constantly, but we're doing things that we find add value and help other people solve problems. And ultimately that's what we're trying to do. Now you talked about guilt as well. And, and so the feeling of guilt is closely tied to shame. Guilt says something about your, what you're doing. Shame says something about who you are as a person. Uh, guilt is like, oh man, I can't believe I stole that candy bar from a store, right? But shame is like, I can't believe I'm the type of person who steals a candy bar from a store. Guilt means we can change our behavior. So if you, try, if you fix the productivity thing and realize like, I don't need to be the most efficient person in the world. I'd rather do something that is meaningful by the way, the other people don't have the expectations of productivity from you, or if they do, they're kind of a jerk. Uh, uh, and, and so, like most of the of our the the pressure we feel is internal. Ninety-eight percent of it is internal, right? And so, if you're 
it sounds to me like you're not feeling shame. You're not like, I'm the type of person who, uh, I can't believe I'm the type of person who wants alone time. What you're saying is like, guilty because I'm not as productive as I should be. I should be doing all these things. I need to do this and this and this and I need to update my status and, and uh, I forgot to post an Instagram story today or whatever. Uh, I need to keep my streak up on Snapchat and, and all of a sudden like, we, we feel guilty about these things because of those mimetic beliefs and realize like those may not actually be your beliefs. So the question to ask yourself is are those my beliefs or did someone else tell me to believe those beliefs? All right, Joe, we have time for like one more question. Um, we're going to... Uh, oh, yeah, no worries. Go ahead. You go first. Okay. So when we're coming up with Starts, I mentioned that you saved my life. And I don't mean that like, oh, my gosh, you saved my life. So I was sitting in my bedroom on the floor, and I was sorting into boxes, things I was giving to people, because I had a friend's suicide attempt. Page, right? Yeah. She'll meet you, Paige. That's my daughter, by the way. So she knows, but you changed generations hmm. by being honest and sharing your hmm. stories and doing these things, and that is phenomenal. I want to thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful. Thank you. So what? What? What I really like about this event is we're going to go old school and do like a hug line where you can like come and talk to us for a second give us a hug one second one second we're timing it uh, snap a picture if you want to but in order to do that we, we got to wrap it up here pretty soon so we got time for one more question who's got the best question go for it so I'm What's Danielle uh, Danielle Danielle sorry I have to talk a little bit about loud um, so I guess like I noticed with me and a lot of people a like kind of like how we keep a drive to commit to things because it is a drive mm -hmm. like a drive to like keep doing maybe like habits and like how do we keep that drive up where it's not just like we crash and just want to give up and you know and it's kind of like what things can you kind of feed for that like, yeah. yeah sounds to me like what you're talking about is overwhelmed sometimes we can get overwhelmed by uh, and this is a common thing that's coming up here, right? Like we get overwhelmed by the feeling productive or needing to fill our calendar every single day. Stratton is, is currently sending, he's updating his calendar right now. <laughs> um, and, and so um, we, we get overwhelmed by all this stuff. And what you're talking about is the entire message of what we're talking about here is, is stripping away the superfluous. And that's really hard. It's finding the joy in missing out. It's saying no to everything extraneous so we can say yes to those things that we want to turn into a habit. Because once it is a habit, it's actually a habit. It, it's almost on autopilot. Habits aren't necessarily a good thing. A lot of people have a smoking habit or a drinking habit, right? Like, and, and so habits can be bad, but they can also be good. I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather find a way to channel what I'm doing to, to be good, but the only way I can do that is if I'm saying, saying no a lot. And, and the only way you get good at saying no, it's like a muscle. You have to build that muscle. 
And, and the way you do that is you practice. You have to be able to say no to overcommitting. So it's not that you're not committing to anything, but you're committing to the right things. And that's why with the whole minimalism thing, it often starts with the stuff. We talk about getting rid of things and decluttering and the 300,000 items that's in the average American household and, and, and letting go, but that's not it. That's the first step, right? Everyone in here knows how to declutter their closet. That's why you'll never see like Ryan and I write about the 53 ways for you to declutter your closet. Like that will get people to click on a thing. It will bring their eyeballs to it, but a car crash will bring eyeballs to something. I'm much more interested in the why to declutter your closet. Why do I get rid of the stuff? What am I actually making room for? And if you can figure that out, you can develop habits around that. Because ultimately we all want to live a meaningful life, but what is a meaningful life for me is gonna look a lot different from what a meaningful life for you is. I wish I had a template. I wish I could say, all right everyone, here's the 100 things you're gonna own. Here are the seven effective habits and, and you're all going to leave here much more fulfilled, but it's perspectival. It's different for each of us. The only thing I'll add is the more you let go, the easier it becomes to let go. And that drive that you're talking about, for me, um, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, uh, I play guitar. And I, I wish I was awesome at guitar, but I'm not awesome at guitar. For me to get there, I know what I have to do to be awesome at guitar. I'm not willing to put that work into it because it's, it's a hobby. It's not something that I absolutely love to do. So I have accepted that I'm very imperfect when it comes to playing guitar for example so don't just don't don't let yourself feel bad about something not being perfect and the, and the more you get used to to that it, it does become easier one thing before wait, wait, what were you going to say kind of like what the drive is I work with a lot of non-profits yeah. on the side and I guess it's a burnout oh yeah and the yeah. thing is like they rely on me so it's really hard yeah. They rely on you for what? Um, I do the social media and medical work for a bird sanctuary, so I do the emergency surgeries. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so I think dri we're talking about drive. What, what you're really talking about, you know, so, so uh, who was it? Uh, Daniel Kahneman, maybe, who did the, uh, um, the study on, on when people are driven at work. And, and it has to do with mastery, autonomy. And uh, what's the third one? Purpose, thank you. Um, and, and so I, I would call purpose meaning, but, but a very similar thing. So mastery means like I feel like, I feel like an expert of what I'm doing. It sounds to me like you, you've got that part down, right? So much so that you're no longer driven by it, right? And, and so the, you need to feel like you are mastering something new. You're growing in a way. When Ryan and I talk about the foundational values, we often talk about growth. If you don't feel like you're growing, what do you feel like? I could see it in your face right now. You feel like you're dying from it, right? And so this work no longer feels purposeful. It doesn't feel meaningful to you anymore because there's no longer that sense of, of mastery, right? So the autonomy is something else that you're, it sounds like you're struggling with because everyone else has these expectations of you. You don't feel like you ha you're able to do your own thing to a certain extent. If you don't feel like you could do that, then uh, 
you feel constricted, right? You, you, uh, and, and if you're constricted, you're certainly not growing. And, and then the purpose side of things is like, it sounds to me like you've actually got that. The work that you're doing may be purposeful, right? It's, it's adding value to other people's lives in some way. And so those three things, you have to find a way. And it may just mean going to the people you work with or work for and expressing to them like, look, I feel like I've already got this. I'm no longer growing anymore, so there's not this sense of mastery. What else can I do to add value that's gonna help me grow, it's gonna light me up? And then also, um, uh, I, I need some freedom. I need some freedom to create. Google does something where they give their, their we went to go speak there, and they give their employees, like it's 15 or 20% free time to like work on whatever project they want. They get to make up their own projects. And we do this with like Jordan, by the way, Jordan No More in the back here. He, he's uh, the filmmaker for The Minimalist and he works on all these little projects. He just launched this new one this month called Unpacking Minimalism on our YouTube channel. He's hosting his own show on The Minimalist YouTube channel where he goes into the podcast and does something uh, unpack something from the, from the podcast. This first one was about the minimalist wallet. That was an idea he had on his own. So he had the autonomy. He has a sense of mastery because he's, he's a great filmmaker, but he's still growing as a filmmaker. But, but then also there's a sense of purpose because he realizes, especially when he sees people like this coming out from you know, a tweet and a text message sort of thing, he sees people coming out, he's like, oh yeah, this is actually adding value to people's lives. And if you can find a way to continue to fulfill those three things, that's how you get your drive back. Yeah. Speaking to the burnout feeling you have, when I was experiencing burnout, I felt very out of control a lot. And I, I, looking back, I wish I would have known how to set boundaries up with my employers, with my friends, instead of, because it doesn't start right away. It's like all of a sudden you're just, you know, you say yes to certain things and then you're in a situation, you're out of control. You're like, how the heck did I get here? Now how do I get out of it? So I, I want to encourage you to set the boundaries up, but it's, it sounds like you really do some meaningful work. So it's very, very important that you are functioning at 100% in order to provide the work that other people rely on you for. If you are burning yourself out, it's, it's not going to get better unless you do some kind of setting boundaries for yourself. But you know the saying, you know, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it on others because... You can't help other people if you're not taking care of yourself first. So um, I guess the reason why I'm telling you this is, is don't feel guilty that you know, you're, you're, you're feeling this burnout. Uh, it's, a, it's important that you're recognizing this feeling that you have, and it's great that you are, um, but you, you can certainly go to your employers and say, hey, look, I need to be 100%, and here are some boundaries that I have to set up. Um, but it doesn't mean that you certainly don't have to continue in, in, in the tornado that you're in right now. Before we wrap it up, real quick, um, you probably saw Jordan here. He's uh, been filming some stuff. Podcast Sean is hiding in the back, um, recording us. Uh, so we have microphones he looks like on a DJ right now. Back there. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually just listening to a podcast right now. Uh, <laughs> um, so we're recording this, and Jordan's been taking a bunch of pictures and stuff. If you want access to that, we can like text it out to you. It's probably the best way to do it. So we set up a text group beforehand. We have, we have this new texting we've been trying for a couple months. It's been awesome. Uh, I'm sure you've actually gotten a text message from us in the last few days. Um, if you want pictures and footage and audio, the only way for you to get it will be uh, text us. So we set up, if you text the word salty to our text number, uh, I can 
give it to you. It's also on the contact page on our website, but uh, I can read it off if you want to grab your phones out. If you don't want any of this stuff, that's great. You don't have to text either. But it, uh, and you can be part of our text group if you'd like. We send out like a weekly sort of minimal maximum, some sort of inspirational thing each week. Um, we would never, ever, ever sell your data to anyone or anything like that. I want you to know that. But we also answer questions via text message, which has been literally answered thousands of text messages. Your text goes literally to my phone and Ryan's phone. It's a bit overwhelming at some times, but um, it's yeah. a lot of fun. <laughs> People do it all the time. Yeah. You can send pictures of yourself decluttering. You, uh, we get a lot of that stuff. It's really great. So the phone number, if you want it, is 937-202-4654. And if you have Instagram, it's there on our Instagram account too. You can just click text us and it will uh, it'll literally go to both of our phones. It's not some robot or some person in Ukraine responding to you. It's actually me and Ryan. We're going to hide in this corner back here, yes. and we're going to do a, a hug line. I know they close at 6, so we have to, we have literally 35 minutes to get out of here. But before we do, I just want to thank you for being here. I, I, I didn't know if a dozen people would show up or uh, however many people were here. This is truly amazing. And, 85? Wow. Well, Sean, you won the bet. <laughs> yeah. This is really great. I just want to say thank you. Uh, um, it, it's really meaningful that you're willing to spend some time with us. We're really grateful. We don't take it for granted. Love people use things, y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. The Minimalists. <laughs>